Good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we are in a series about our future. And uh, this is actually week 10, and we're actually going to open the book of Revelation, which I know it took a while, but um, I'm excited about it. So, the drama's done. Why then doesn't anyone step forth? Because one did survive the wreck. It's so chance that after Parsi's disappearance, I was he whom the fates ordained to take the place of Ahab's bozeman. When that bozeman assumed the vacant post, the same who, when on the last day three men were tossed from the rocking boat, was dropped astern. For almost one whole day and night, I floated on a soft and dirge-like mane. The unharming sharks glided by as if they had padlocks on their mouths. The savage seahawks sailed with sheath beaks, and on the second day, a sail drew near, near, and picked me up at last. It was the devious cruising Rachel that in her retracing search after her missing children only found another orphan. Wow, right? It was great, huh? That's an excerpt from the classic book Moby Dick. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Well, it might, if you've read the story from the beginning, you see, that's the end of Moby Dick. It's very powerful if you know the story before. In fact, if you've been along on the journey from the start, this paragraph not only makes a lot of sense, it's an incredible ending to an amazing story. Same is true with the book of Revelation. It makes no sense unless it's in the context of understanding the previous 65 books of the Bible. You see, the story of God opens in the book of Genesis and in, closes in the book of Revelation. You can't pick up Revelation and not know what's gone before and try to make sense out of it. It's like reading the last chapter of Moby Dick and having no idea who anybody is. Those who pick up and try to understand the book of Revelation without first and re understanding and reading the Bible find themselves confused and bewildered. Those without the Holy Spirit find it impossible. It's only in the context of the biblical story that this book makes any sense. And to those with that understanding, it's actually a relatively easy book to understand. The story of God that we call the Bible is about real people who lived in real places. They come to us with a very real history. The Bible, in its finished final form, was written over 1,500 years by at least 40 different authors, and it's a unified work of literature. It starts at the beginning. It works its way all the way through. There are themes. There are uh, threads that run through the Bible, and they all come to a culmination in Revelation. Between the very first words of Genesis and the last words of Revelation, there's a linear story that runs throughout. It's the story of God and his people. The main character is God, the conflict is sin, and the theme is redemption. The book of Revelation is actually one of the easiest books of the Bible to teach, provided you've read all the books leading up to it. You'd never pick up a 2,000-page novel, read the last chapter, and think you're going to understand the story. In the same way, you can't isolate Revelation and think you're able to understand it. Bible claims to be the inspired word of God. We don't make that claim about it. God made that claim in it. You can't read the Bible without understanding that God claimed this book to be uniquely special and he literally breathes in it and through it. You may not believe that to be true, but you can't accept the text without accepting that claim that is in the word. God says, this is my word, this is my revelation. I don't know how to say it any more clearly. You believe it or you don't, but it is what it is, regardless of your opinion. The book of Revelation, I'm gonna keep repeating this because it's so important, it is rooted in the Old Testament. It contains more than 500 allusions to the Old Testament. Of the 278 of the 404 verses in Revelation, which is 70%, make some reference to the Old Testament. It's the culmination of the story of God. 
The first time Jesus came, he claimed to be God. Some believed and some did not. The second time, there will be no doubt he's God. Everyone will know and some will still reject him. This book is the ultimate unveiling of who Jesus truly is. So it's not surprising that Satan has worked very hard to keep believers from studying, teaching, and more importantly, applying the truths that are in the book of Revelation. Satan hates the word of God, but particularly the books of Genesis and Revelation. In the book of Genesis, Satan doom is prophesied. In the book of Revelation, it becomes a reality. In Genesis, we see the creation of the heavens and the earth. In Revelation, we see the creation of new heavens and new earth. In Genesis, we see the first Adam reigning on earth. In Revelation, we see Jesus, the last Adam reigning in glory. In Genesis, we see an earthly bride brought to the first Adam. In Revelation, we see a heavenly bride brought to the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam. In Genesis, we see the beginning of death and the curse of sin. In Revelation, the Savior brings us to a state where there's no more death, no more curse. In the book of Genesis, man is driven from God's face in sin. In the book of Revelation, we see God's face in glory. In Genesis, Satan appears for the first time. In Revelation, Satan appears for the very last time. This is the story of the victory of God. The story of every promise throughout the entire Bible coming to pass, exactly as promised down to the greatest detail. This book answers almost every question that previous books asked. It answers definitively what believers need to know about their future their mission, and their role in the future. Things that were unclear become revealed. It is beyond me that believers don't know this book. They should know this book better than any of the others with the exception of perhaps the Gospels. It is the ultimate season end. It's not a cliffhanger though. At the end of the book, you're not left wondering what else is going to be revealed next season. It's all there. As a believer, you know everything about the end, about the finality, about eternity. There's no questions left. You understand everything you need to understand about God. Everything else he will teach you in eternity. I often state that I believe that every story in the Bible is about Jesus. Somebody once said, uh, you got to prove that. So I did an entire series of the Old Testament and saw Jesus in 16 different stories. If you read the Bible and you don't see Jesus everywhere, you need to reread it. He is the central character. He is the star of the show. This book has for its subject Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God. The promise of a savior Messiah is first mentioned in Genesis 3. Throughout the rest of the scripture, the central focus is on the Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament points to his arrival. Everything in the New Testament is about his life and his promise to return. The central theme, the story is all about Jesus. It is a single story from beginning to end about man's sin, God's uh, ability to save us and the redemptive plan through Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. He did things only God could do. From his birth to his death to his resurrection, he partially revealed who God is and what God's doing to save those that he loved. He stated that one day everything would be revealed. And we would see him as he is without a veil. That is this story. It's the revelation. In fact, the last book of God's story is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not revelations. A lot of people say, are you going to study revelations? No, it's not in the Bible. Revelation is in the Bible. Because there's only one thing to reveal and that's Jesus Christ. He is the one single hero and Messiah and God. 
The Greek word for revelation is the word in English where we get apocalypse. It literally means an unveiling, to reveal what's hidden, to see what has not yet been seen. What is being unveiled in Revelation is Jesus himself. God is revealing to us or is unveiling for us the second coming of Jesus is going to be much different than the first. The second coming of Jesus will be so different from his first coming when his glory was veiled. He came first time to a crucifixion. He's coming again to a coronation. Came the first time in shame. He returns the second time in splendor. He came the first time to a tree. He's coming this time to a throne. He came the first time and stood before Pilate. He's coming again and Pilate will stand before him. He came the first time as a servant. He's coming again as sovereign. If you wanted to put in correct terms or current terms, Jesus is coming back and the gloves are off. Mm -hmm. You will see and know exactly who he is, exactly what he's going to do, and you will know instantly where you stand in a relationship with him. But you don't fully understand these things by reading the book of Revelation. You understand these things by starting in Genesis 3, watching the themes develop through the Jewish nation, through the prophets, through the gospels, through the letters to the churches, and then you'll understand the book of Revelation. When you study the book of Revelation, you spend a whole lot of time in other parts of the Bible. In fact, almost no one in the book of Revelation is new. There's no character introduced who's new. Most objects aren't introduced as new. In fact, almost no one in the book of Revelation is a new finding for us. If you think about the idea of revealing, it's not the idea of introducing. Right? When we introduce something, I'm going to show you something you've never seen before. When I reveal something, I'm going to show you something you've seen before in a new and different way taking what's already there and showing it to you in a new way or a better way so that you can understand and understand purpose. In addition, objects and symbols and references are almost never introduced in the book of Revelation. These things are usually seen in other parts of Scripture, including the book itself. Let me show you a couple examples. Revelation 1.12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, with a, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Now, every time you read the book of Revelation, every time you see one of those little round circles, the dot at the end of the sentence, that means stop and visualize. Every sentence, stop and visualize what was just said. So what are these lampstands? Well, turns out God tells us in Revelation 1.20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, then I go back and I go, okay, I understand now. Jesus is walking among the seven churches. One like the Son of Man. Who is this character? Well, we've seen him before. Daniel saw him, chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. So throughout the Bible, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, that's the very claim that gets him crucified. Jesus is the only person who uses that term about himself. He's taking it from Daniel and he's making the claim, the person Daniel wrote about is me. I am God. 
Matthew 26, 63, but Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your judgment? And they said he deserves death. If Jesus is not claiming to be the person of Daniel 7, his claim is on the highest order of blasphemy and he should be crucified. You see, without the backdrop of the entire Bible, you're going to have a hard time understanding the book of Revelation. In fact, many people come to some of the most bizarre interpretations that are imaginable because they don't know the story before they get to Revelation. But honestly, it's a relatively simple book. Let's get to it. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. The revelation. The Greek means to unveil, to take a veil off. The revelation is not meant to be confusing. It's not meant to be a problem to work through or solve. It's not a book that hides something. It's meant to be an unveiling. It's meant to reveal something to us that God wants us to know. You see, people say, oh, the book of Revelation, I don't, I'll never understand it. It's too weird. No, the whole purpose of the book is to show you something, to unveil it. Something you've seen before, but now you'll understand because God's going to unveil it. So what is God unveiling? He's unveiling Jesus Christ. He's the one who's been veiled. Just like a bride is veiled at her wedding to reveal herself to the groom, Jesus is unveiled to us in Revelation to show us who he really is. In his first time here, we saw part of who he was. Well, we, we saw enough to have faith, but in Revelation, and when Jesus returns, we'll see him in his full glory. Nothing will be hidden from us. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the purpose of this book is for Christ to unveil and to reveal to us in order to show us what's going to happen in the future. God did not want us to be confused about our future. I'm going to reveal it. I'm going to unveil it. That's the purpose of this book. From the outset, we're given the most important truth about the book of Revelation. The book shows us the Antichrist. It shows us God's judgment. It shows us calamity on earth. It shows us the mystery Babylon in vivid detail. Most of all, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ to us. If we catch everything else in this book and miss Jesus in this book, we have missed the book of Revelation. Note that this revelation belongs to Jesus Christ. It's his. It's about Jesus, and he's the one doing the unveiling. It's as if Jesus, through an angel and through himself, went down to John and said, okay, let me show you what's really going to happen. Let me show you who I really am. Yes, I was transfigured up on the mountain, but let me show you who I really am because you just saw a glimpse of my glory. You haven't seen nothing yet. And I want you to write this down and it's going to blow your mind because the things I'm going to show you are things of God, not things of man. You won't have the words to even describe what you're going to see. So you're going to have to use symbols. No one can explain the things of heaven. He gave his revelation of himself Note who he gives it to, to his servants. God gave this revelation to it be shown, not hidden. This is an apocalypse, a revelation, not apocrypha, something to hide. God is unveiling who he is and at the same time showing us our future. Why is he being revealed? What, What purpose is his revelation? Well, the scriptures tell us. To show his servants the things that must soon take place. Why are we reading this book? 
God is going to show us the things that must take place. And in the process, he's going to unveil to us more about Jesus Christ. The revelation is to show the servants, to show his followers, to show believers. To understand the unveiling of Jesus Christ in revelation, you have to be guided by the Holy Spirit. You must be aware of the story of Jesus. You must know the scriptures beforehand and you need to let the Holy Spirit teach you what what is being revealed. Without the Holy Spirit, this book and the other 65 make no sense. Not my words, God's. He showed his servants what must soon take place. Shortly or soon is an ancient Greek phrase, which we read as well, it should have happened a long time ago. But what it really means is that when it does happen, it's coming quickly, suddenly. Something is going to quickly and suddenly come to pass. The Greek don't use the word that suggests it's going to be in the next month or two. Soon, something that comes quickly, something that comes soon in Greek means when it happens, whenever that is, it's going to be like that. The idea is not that the event may occur soon, but when it does, it'll be sudden. And since it's a revelation and God wants us to know the future, it should be crystal clear and relatively easy to understand for those who the Holy Spirit have, who have the Holy Spirit, and who truly want to know. So if Jesus is revealing himself to his followers, how did this information get to us? Did John just make this stuff up? I mean, he was old. Maybe he just had dementia. Maybe one day he just thought he saw a dream and a vision and he started rambling. He started writing it down. Maybe this is all John's just demented rant that happened late in his life. Who exactly is unveiling Christ? Revelation 1.1. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. He revealed this information through an angel to the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, the youngest disciple, the one that all he said about himself is, I'm one that Jesus loves. There's nothing special about me. And yet he wrote John, John 1, 2, and 3, and the book of Revelation. He's known for his love for people, for his congregation. And in this book, a lot of people get turned off because it's a book of signs. It's a book that communicates in signs, images, pictures. And that those signs in Revelation have been a source of confusion and controversy for some people. Yet the signs are necessary because John is seeing the things of heaven. Let me just picture this. You're a first century guy living on an on a island. An angel comes to you and says, let me show you the future. You see images of nuclear bombs blowing people up. You see images of their skin literally just falling off their face. You see images of people seeing everything happen in the world all at once. You don't know what's going on. It makes no sense to you. These are events that you have no words for. How do you describe to people the future when they don't even have smartphones back then? How do they describe that? What words do you have? The answer is you don't have them. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he heard with inexpressible words when he saw the things of heaven. In other words, when he saw the things of heaven, he just started babbling. He didn't know what to say. John described things he saw, but he could only use symbolic images to explain it. To us, this is a book of prophecy. But John simply recorded history unfolding before him. As he saw it, John had visions from heaven, but he had to describe them in his own language and his own manner. That's the challenge of the book of Revelation. We sometimes wonder if the authors of the New Testament knew that they were writing holy scriptures. At least in this case, John knew clearly what I'm writing are the very words of God. 
He called it a revelation from God, not from John. He knew it came from the Father through Jesus and not from any mere human. He knew it was the Holy Scripture because he called it the Word of God. As an Old Testament prophet would say, John knew what it meant to say something was a word from God. He also called it the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. So these symbols, these signs, these images, they're, they're necessary because there's tremendous power in symbolic language, in metaphors. When you can paint a picture, that's what sermons are really about, painting a picture in your mind of who you could be, who God wants you to be, helping you to see something you haven't seen before. It's, it's one thing to call someone or something evil or bad, but it's far more vivid to describe the image of a woman drunk with the blood of saints. It's by his angel. We're going to see in the book of Revelation that angels reveal a lot to John during this, this book. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Blessed. This is the only book in the Bible that carries that specific promise. Now we understand that we're blessed by every word of Scripture. We're blessed because we can breathe. We're blessed because we can read. And we're blessed because God has given us 65 books prior to Revelation that he will show us what it means. But this particular book, he said, blessed are those who hear it. I think God, well, I know God knew that even believers would hesitate to read and understand this book. I think he knew that. We get to the end of times and the believers aren't reading the book that tells them their future. And people aren't teaching on it. We have to remember that Satan opposes everything from God, especially the unveiling of his destruction and failure. And who he really is. And because they neglect the book of Revelation, many people miss the blessing. For example, the Anglican Church virtually omits Revelation in its regular schedule of readings for public worship and private devotions. Nothing from Revelation. The Baptist seminary that I attended for one year before I transferred um, didn't even have a class on it. All you need to know is that Jesus is coming back and he wins. This is a typical attitude towards the book of Revelation within the church. Many believe only fanatics want to deep dig in this book. Only wild people, only crazy people. Yet it's a book for anyone, God says, who wants to be blessed. Fortunately, John didn't say we had to understand the book of Revelation in order to be blessed. There are some difficult things in this book that may be understood as we look back at fulfilled prophecy, but we can be blessed by reading and hearing it even when we don't fully understand every single word of it. The promise of the blessing, though, shows that John regarded this book as holy scripture. In the Jewish word, such a blessing could never be pronounced on a human book. When John says you will be blessed by this book, he's revealing it to be the very word of God. He who reads. Now, remember when we studied the Bible, I talk all the time about you got to pay attention to the tenses that are in Scripture and the people who are in Scripture. So he who reads is singular, right? One person, he who reads. I know the world's messed up on this, but just trust me, he means one person. Those who hear is plural. It speaks of many people hearing. The idea is probably from the custom of the early church where attention was given to the public reading of Scripture, which was often then explained. In our modern way of saying, John might be saying, blessed is the pastor who teaches Revelation and blessed is the congregation who hears it. Most of all, pastors or congregations are blessed However, when they keep the things that are in it. God's revelation, you see, is a promise and a demand. It's a promise because it gives us a new way of looking at the world. 
Ancient Greek tragedies reflect a way of looking at the world that lacks hope for ultimate justice and healing. That's why they're called Greek tragedies. God's perspective, by contrast, encourages us that his justice will always prevail, often in the short run, but always in the long run. It is a blessing, but this revelation also approaches us as a demand. As God's servants who receive this message, we, like John, must be witnesses of what we know about the future. In many parts of the world, Christians are actively sharing their faith and paying a very heavy price for it. For example, Protestants in China multiplied from under 2 million believers to perhaps 60 million believers after four decades of intense persecution and torture and martyrdom of their leaders. They kept telling people they didn't care, didn't matter. Yes, they're being killed, but millions are coming to know Jesus. 25 baptized Christians in Nepal in 1960 multiplied 1,000 times over in 25 years at a time when Christians faced a six-year prison sentence for baptizing anyone. By contrast, many North American churches have proved timid merely witnessing to co-workers. Revelation challenges our complacency, whether by pointing us to the price true Christians must be prepared to pay for following Jesus or revealing the dangers of a compromise with a world opposed to the one we acknowledge as Lord. It's crystal clear that the world opposes the very person revealed in Revelation. And if we follow, and I hope we do, and teach that, guess what? We are going to be opposed. If we're living wrinkle-free lives, there's a good chance we're not applying revelation. We're hearing it. We're understanding it. But blessed are those who follow it. That's why verse 3 is not only a blessing to those who hear and keep, but to those who apply what is written in it. Revelation is not good news for everybody. It should terrify those who are satisfied with the way things are, the same way it would have terrified many ancient hearers who learned of its message. The book of Revelation gives us much more than information for prophetic speculation. In other words, we're not just reading the book of Revelation, so we say, yeah, I knew that. I knew that was going to happen. I knew that. You see China, see the U.S., see all that. I knew that was going to happen. That's not the reason we read the book of Revelation. It gives us things to keep. It changes the way we live. Yes, all those things are happening, but let me tell you why they're happening. Jesus is sovereign. And what he promised is happening. And let me show you where it was promised. And let me show you what your future looks like. And let me show you what's about to happen next. See, we are to apply the book of Revelation, not sit back and argue about what the different things mean. It is a revelation of Jesus. Note that the text itself claims to be a prophecy of God. Prophecies, prophets stand between God and the people on behalf of God. John is speaking to us on behalf of God, revealing what will soon take place. All these things together show that beyond a doubt, the book of Revelation claims to be Holy Scripture. Critic can argue, disagree with that claim, but it can't be denied. God in Revelation reveals that himself. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Very simply, John is writing this letter to seven very real churches in seven very real places in Asia, modern day Turkey. Saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So where is this letter going? Well, we know where this letter is going. It's going to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Ephesus was John's church. Write a letter to yourself about your church. 
Paul had spent years there establishing it on his third missionary journey. He stayed there and led the church from 54 to 57 AD. Ephesus was a very important city, had a very important deep water port for ships, very wealthy, had 250,000 people at that time. And after Paul left, some years later, John led that church for years. The next church is Smyrna, it's in modern day Izmir in Turkey. You can visit the sites of all these places today. They're real places, real churches, who years ago were church homes of very real believers, just like you and me. These aren't fairy tale places, they're very real. The other churches are Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, and John is writing a letter to each one of them. We'll learn more as we go forward. We're gonna dive into detail on each one of these letters, trust me. But since seven is the number of completion, we will see that these letters, while specifically addressed to the seven churches, were to be shared with all seven churches. The letter to Ephesus was to be read to the other six and vice versa. Why? Why didn't he just say, here's a letter, send it to all the churches? Well, because I believe the message to the churches is given to the global church as well. The word seven means complete. Seven churches means all the churches of all the world of all times. As we study the letter to the churches, we see ourselves. We see that every church has issues outlined for each individual church. In one sense, the seven letters identify areas where the global church has failed. When you read the letters to the seven churches, you're like, oh my gosh, they failed their mission. Each one of them had a major problem that Jesus wanted them to fix or at least something for them to keep doing and persecute through. But the message of the letters is, here's how you've done with what I've given you. And when you read it as a church today, you realize he's talking about us. That's why Jesus has to return and set things right. See, we can't do it. We don't have the power. We don't have the ability to fix our world. We need a Messiah who fixes it. We need God to fix it. We're going to do our best to represent him, but on our best day, in the flesh, even with the Holy Spirit helping and each church having their own angel, we're going to fall short. And we need someday for Jesus to come back and set it right. That's what the revelation is about. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. The construction of who is and who was and who is to come is intentionally awkward in Greek. There's no word for that. There's no word for somebody who was and is and will be. There, there's no eternal in the Greek. It, it's difficult to explain. So what, what John did, he said, look, I'm, I'm going to try to explain this to you. He's the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He searched his language for something that would communicate the Old Testament idea of Yahweh. You see, it's never enough to say that God is or he was, or that he is to come. As Lord over eternity, he rules the past, the present, and the future. He's all. John essentially tells them, I pray for grace and peace for you from the Trinity, the Father who was and is and is to come, the seven spirits, the complete Holy Spirit, and from Jesus himself. That's who's sending you this greeting. John says to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne, the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the Son, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the King. I'm sending you their grace, their peace. Not mine. My peace doesn't mean anything. Theirs has everything. He's writing on behalf of the entire assembled group. Seven spirits who are before the throne. Well, we've seen seven stars, and we were told those were the angels of the churches. Seven lampstands, the churches themselves, and now we see seven spirits. Remember, seven is the biblical number of completeness. 
the full, complete Holy Spirit. John brings a greeting from God, the Holy Spirit, who is described before the title, the seven spirits who are before his throne. Speaks to perfection and completion of the Holy Spirit. He's using an Old Testament reference to the Holy Spirit from Isaiah 11, verse 2. Remember I told you, when you see something in Revelation, go find it. It's not new, it's somewhere. Isaiah 11, 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the Spirit of, the Spirit of the Lord, of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, and of fear. Seven characteristics, seven completeness of the Holy Spirit himself. Seven aspects of the Lord. Of the Lord, of wisdom, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, of fear of the Lord. It isn't that there are seven different spirits of God. Rather, the Spirit of the Lord has all seven of these characteristics. And he has them in fullness and perfection. And from Jesus himself, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, means much more than Jesus was the first person resurrected. It also means that he is preeminent among all those who will or have been or ever will be resurrected. Jesus is the firstborn of all the brethren. Jesus is the ruler over kings. Before we get to the end of Revelation, Jesus will take dominion over every earthly king. At the present time, Jesus rules a kingdom, but his kingdom is not yet of this world. It will be. Verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen means, may it be as I have said. Okay, John is finishing his introduction here. To him who loves us, typical John. Don't forget he loves us. Whatever you do, don't forget. He loves us. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. John says, may this letter bring glory and honor to Jesus who loves us and freed us with his blood and made us a kingdom of priests. Notice the order. First loved, then washed. It wasn't that God washed us of our sins and then he could love us. He loved us. He washed. He loved us while we were still dirty. And then he washes us. It would have been enough to just love them and cleanse them, us. But he goes beyond. He makes us kings and priests to his God and Father. Do you realize that? You and I are going to be not only priests, but kings. Hmm. That's more than Adam ever was. Even in the innocence of Eden, before the fall, we never read of Adam as a king or prince or priest on earth. We're kings. We're part of God's royalty. We're part of his family. He's king. We're his family. You are a daughter of the king. You are a son of the king. It brings with it privilege and status and authority that has nothing to do with us. When I was in London recently, I was at Buckingham Palace, right? And if you're from London and you love royal, I'm sorry, but I, I don't get it. And um, I was telling Tammy, I said, I think this is the biggest scam that's ever been promoted on earth. A family got together and said, let's decide that we're special. And we'll get everybody to give us all their money and resources for decade after decade. And our entire family line is never going to have to work. And they're going to love it because we're royal. I, I was walking, watching the guards and watching back. And I'm like, who, who did this? This is genius. Hmm. Oh, well. We're priests. That means we are God's special servants. We are to serve our God. That's what priests do. They serve. We represent God to man and man to God. We offer sacrifices to him, our full living sacrifices. 
And we have privileged access to his presence. Kings and priests. In the Old Testament, it was forbidden to combine the office of king and priest. They had to be separate. Under the New Covenant, we can be like Jesus in the sense that he is both king and high priest. Jesus loves us, and he loves us while we're still sinners. In fact, the book of Revelation is actually an expression of his full love for us. You see, we read it and we want to just get focused on battles and creatures and bowls and seals and all these things that happen. And yeah, they're interesting. But if you're going to unveil Jesus and who he really is, the one thing you're going to see is love. Revelation is a book of love. It's about a God who loves us and made a promise and is keeping his promise for those that he wants to save. It's about those who have seen and understood and put faith in his love for us, finally feeling the full force of his love for those he's coming to save from a world that hates them and hates him. It's a book of love. It's a book of rescue. It's a book of salvation. It's a book from a Savior who's going for the people he loves. He's coming back for us. Why? Because he loves us. But even as overwhelming as his love is, it's only a taste of the depth of God's love that's going to be revealed fully in our future and in eternity. This is a book about God's love returning to earth. It's a book about God's people finally seeing him unveiled, feeling the full force of, of his love. It, yeah, it has to do with creatures and things, but the point is, is that our Savior's coming back for us. He's keeping his promise. The first and foremost, a book that fully reveals God's love. It's a book that shows us how much God is willing to go through to save those who can still be saved. Don't miss that in this book, there are people that aren't yet saved. And they will become saved in the tribulation. God's not just, okay, I'm done, let's go torture it. No, he's like, look, I'm going to give every person who's still alive on earth a chance to see who I am. And just like the plagues in Egypt, here are the first bowl, the first seal, do, do you believe me yet? Can anybody else, do, do you believe me yet? See, because I really love you and I want, you, I want the light to go on. I want you to choose to love me. I could have made you a robot. I could have made you love me. But that's not love. In order to love, you have to have the choice not to love. Do you believe me yet? Oh, that didn't do it? Okay, well, here goes another one. Do you love me yet? And at some point throughout Revelation, after a certain number of seals or a certain number of bowls or all those things we talk about, there's going to be people that go, I get it. I was stubborn, but I want to come home. And Jesus is going to meet them just like he met you and me in that place of surrender. This is a book about love. It's a book about a God coming for his people and for those who don't know him yet. It's a chance for him to unveil himself in his full glory so that people who are rejecting him know exactly who they're rejecting. And people who are accepting him see him in his full glory and understand who he is. That's why he's unveiling himself. He's still trying to save people. It's a book about God's justice. In the end, everyone gets what they want. Let me repeat that. In the end, we all get what we want. You either spend a thousand years with Jesus as Lord on earth, or you don't. You either spend eternity with Jesus in a new heaven and new earth, or you spend eternity separated from him in hell. You get what you want. I can't imagine anything worse than rejecting Jesus on earth and then having to be with him for all of eternity. I mean, it makes no sense. We've waited 65 books for this unveiling. Line by line, chapter by chapter, dot by dot. Theme being connected from beginning to end, weaving its way through scripture to get to the very end where Jesus explains everything. 
It's an incredible truth that we're going to explore. I, I can't wait to share with you the truths that are in this book. Promise is that both the teacher and those who hear will be richly blessed. I honestly can't imagine being more blessed than I already am. I'm breathing and I'm on earth and I have a Lord who loves me, but he says he'll bless us. I'm willing to go there. This is going to be an incredible experience. And if the Lord's willing, we're going to continue this in two weeks. Pastor Ed will be up next week. Tammy and I are going to Texas. I know. It's the motherland. It's a chance for my mom who's in her 90s to see her great-grandchild she's never seen. So we're going to go do that. So pray for us on that trip. That'll be fun. In two weeks, we'll pick back up in Revelation. And I promise you, it's going to be an unveiling of Jesus in the way that he described and the way he reveals himself. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you want us to know who you are. From Genesis to Revelation, you reveal yourself to your people. You want us to know you. You love us and you want us to love you. Every scripture, every story, every prophecy is all you saying, will you love me yet? Every blessing, every difficult circumstance that we need you for, you're just right there. So God, we get to the end of your book and we see this revelation. And yes, there are parts of it that are kind of weird. But the things of God don't make sense to us. I say it all the time. It's like explaining the internet to an ant. So God, we see what you want us to see. We believe what you tell us, what you reveal to us. But you promise us that through this book, you will completely unveil, reveal, everything that we need to know about you at this time. Thank you, God, that even in heaven, our understanding of you just continues to grow. But on this side of eternity, God, this is the full revelation of who you say you are. Help us, God, to see what you want to show us as we go through this series. We love you. We thank you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.